Good morning, everyone. We are continuing in our series on summer doctrine. I think it's coming up. What oh, is there? Good. Okay, I feel better now. Wasn't sure it was going to work. So, we've had like three sermons in this summer doctrine series on God, our enemy Satan, on humanity, the doctrine of man. And they've kind of been these big, kind of encouraging, kind of glorious sermons on what the Bible contains. And today, I want to confess that this message today is going to sound a little bit more like teaching than like preaching. And I have to just get that off of my chest because in my past, I've been accused of being a good teacher but not a good preacher. So I'm just going back to teaching here, okay? This is going to be like teaching. But that's okay. You know, the most common title for Jesus was rabbi. And you know what rabbi means? Teacher, yeah. So when people said I was a good teacher but not a good preacher, I just threw that back at them. That's okay. That's good company to keep. But last week we looked at the doctrine of mankind, and we approached it from the reality that humanity has by and large lost the plot, has lost the script on what it means to be human and how to act and be image bearers of God. So it seemed natural then now that we would talk about the script the doctrine of scripture, the doctrine of the word of God. And the essence of today is to talk about why is this book this book? Why do we believe this? How do we know that the books that should be in here are in here? And how do we know that there aren't any books that shouldn't be in here in here? And that it is the word of God and that it is inspired. We need to understand why this is the script, why this is the book. And that's important, because if, as Paul even said in 1 Corinthians, if basically Paul said, if this isn't true, then you might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die. He says, if this isn't true, then we above all men are to be pitied. So we need to know this is true as disciples. We need to know it for ourselves. We need to know it even just to sort of uh, inoculate ourselves against some of the myth myths out there, or some of the the false arguments about why we can't trust this, that we don't know what books should be in here. You know, if you've ever read Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code, and what about the Gospel of Thomas, and what about the Gospel of Mary, and what about the apocryphal books, and, you know, people raise all these questions and may cause us to doubt. So today is really simple. It's just teaching on an overview of why the Bible is the Bible, and why we trust it, from various different sources and various different reasons why we trust this book. And if you want some extra information on this, because it's a big, big topic, um, I'll just point you towards last fall when we were going through our discipleship series, I did a sermon, The God Who Speaks, which is all about this book. So if you want a more preachy kind of sermon, that's a good one for that. Uh, Packer's Concise Theology, if you're following along in that, Covenant and Law, pages 87 to 93. Packer doesn't cover the doctrine of Scripture head on, but he talks about covenant and law, so that would be related. And then there's a great book, if you want to dig into this, it's kind of a layman's level, Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung. Now, I haven't read that book, but I know the lectures that it's based on, and it's also uh, written by Kevin DeYoung, and you should basically read everything he writes. So 
there you go. There's some background stuff, because this is a topic that you can go very, very deep in. And I can't possibly cover all the doctrines that, that cover Scripture, or all the history, or all the reasons. But this morning, I just want to give us a glimpse. I just want to give us a glimpse, an overview of why for... Uh, 1,700 years, basically, and longer than that, as you will discover, everybody believes that this really is the Word of God, and these are the right books. And there's lots of reasons why that is true, and lots of myths of why, why people might argue that's untrue. So we're just getting a glimpse into why we trust the Bible in the form we have it. Let me just pray before we do that. Father God, we just pray as we open up your Word, as we consider your Word, that your Holy Spirit would come and open our eyes and open our hearts and open our minds, that we can understand why we place so much trust in your written word and why your written word is what it is and why it can be counted on and is relevant today as it has been relevant through every age. Father, we just commit this time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I hope to do this in roughly three parts. Um, There are doctrines of biblical canon, these are the right books, doctrine of authority, that it speaks authoritatively, doctrine of clarity, the scripture can be understood. You know, I can't cover all of that, but what I want to do is look at what do we mean by the word of God, what does history say about these books and about scripture, and then finally, bringing it back to us as disciples, what does Jesus say about this book and about the scriptures? And so, just to back up a little bit, when we talk about God's words, what, what are we talking about when we talk about the Word of God? And maybe it seems obvious, especially if you've been a believer for a long time, we're just talking about everything in here. But the reality is there's a basis for why the Word of God is the Word of God. And most directly, we have direct speech from God. God literally speaks commands and decrees, prophecies and facts. God speaks to creation and to his people. And and this is where the word of God gets its start. It gets its start from God speaking. In Genesis chapter 1, God speaks the words of creation. He says, let there be light. And there is light. And then continuing on, God's spoken word is unfathomably powerful. Psalm 33, 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So God literally speaks. That's why my sermon last fall was called The God Who Speaks. But then God speaks in personal address. God speaks to people. In Genesis, God speaks to Adam and Eve. God spoke to Moses in a burning bush. And then he spoke again on the mountain of Sinai to give the people the law. Says in Exodus, and God spoke all these words saying in Exodus 20. So sometimes God would communicate in dreams and visions, which is not his direct speech, but it's direct communication. So we start with the word of God by God speaking to creation and commandments and prophecies, speaking directly to people. We also see God speaking via his servants, either human or angelic. The prophets spoke to Israel, often beginning what they were going to say with, thus says the Lord. We read that in Jeremiah 45.2 and Haggai 1.5 and dozens of other places. In Deuteronomy 18, God tells Moses, that's him speaking to people, he says, I will raise up a prophet like you and I will put my words in his mouth. So God tells his people, I'm going to speak through you. Get ready for this. I'm going to raise up people through whom I speak. We have an example of this in Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah 1.9, God says, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. Right? So this is God speaking through his people. This is why we know that God speaks and that we trust the people that he speaks through. Sometimes angels carry a message from God, although it's remarkably rare in the thousands of years that the scripture covers how rarely messages come from God through angels. It's usually through his people that we get the message from God. So if someone tells you that an angel told them something directly from God, I personally would just pause and ask some more questions about that. Because even here, God rarely speaks to people through angels. And so he normally speaks through his people. And then we also have God's word in written form. And that culminates in the Bible we have today. But it's recorded several times that God's words were written down directly. First of all, directly by him. And the tablets of stone were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Like, how cool is that? That written word from God. Just like words from his mouth, words on stone from his finger. But then we're told that Moses wrote down the law of God as he was told it in Deuteronomy 31. He placed it in the ark. And then it's recorded that Joshua added to the book in Joshua 24, 26. And then Isaiah was commanded to write down God's word in a book in Isaiah 30. And Jeremiah was told to write. He says, oh, I'm sorry. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. So God literally tells his people, write things down. This is how I want my people to know what they need to know is that it gets written down. And then Jesus tells his disciples the Holy Spirit will help them remember the words that he has spoken in John 14, 26. And then Paul says the words that his words are commands of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 14. And then Peter affirms all the apostles' words are from God in 2 Peter 3.2. And then Paul specifically in 2 Peter 3.15, his words specifically are affirmed by Peter as scripture. And so we have this tremendous witness from God himself that writing is a form in which he intends his words to be preserved and to be remembered by his people. So God speaks, God speaks to people, God speaks through people, God tells the people that he's speaking through to write stuff down, Jesus tells the disciples that the Spirit is going to help them remember the things that they were taught. And then finally, in a special case, we have Jesus himself as God's word personified. He's called the word in John 1.1 and in Revelation 19.13. It's only the Apostle John who uses this specific name or attribution to Jesus, that Jesus is the word. But it doesn't diminish its significance just because John is the one who uses that title. The writer of Hebrews especially says it as well. But we have this reality that Jesus is the word of God, meaning he is the perfect communication of who God is in his character, just as is the scripture and the words of God in the Old Testament. And as we'll see in the New. Jesus is so much the word that he tells doubting Thomas, if you had known me, you would know the Father, and now you do know him and have seen him, because you've seen me. So Jesus is the word. So when we consider what are we even talking about when we talk about the Word of God, we're talking about all of those things, and collectively we mean the Bible as we have it today. Second Timothy says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. 
All of this scripture is God's and it is good for us. But why is this Bible the word of God? I want to come back to that. We see that God speaks. We see that God wants us to have his word. He wants to even have it in written form. But is this God's word? Do we have good reason to trust that this particular group of 66 books divided into the Old and the New Testament, written by dozens of different authors over thousands of years, that this book really is the word of God? Well, let's consider, as I touched on, what we can learn from history. Biblical canon from history. Specifically, we'll start in the Old Testament. Why only these books in the Old Testament and not books that you may have heard about like Esdras and Maccabees and Baruch? If you open up an old Bible, I think even our Bible up here has it, especially a Catholic Bible, you'll see in the middle between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's these books called the Apocrypha. And they have like weird names that sound almost like Old Testament names, but not quite. And we're not really sure necessarily who wrote all of them. But as we already reviewed, God began writing the Old Testament with the Ten Commandments on stone, and he told Moses to add to the book, and then Joshua, and then in Chronicles, he told Samuel and Nathan to keep writing, and then there's lesser-known scribes like Gad and Jehu in Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 29, and of course we know Jeremiah and Isaiah and David and Solomon and Daniel and Hosea and Jonah, all the way up to Malachi. All of these people were writing the Word of God, and at that point, writing did not cease among the Jewish people. Like for 400 years, it's not like the Jewish people of, and, and, the, and the people of Israel just stopped writing. But for 400 years, by their own admission, there were no new prophets. By the consensus of the people of God, no one spoke, thus saith the Lord, after Malachi. You have almost 400 years of silence until the Gospels. Now, the, why aren't those middle books in that 400 years considered canon? Well, the first of all is the apocryphal writers themselves didn't consider it canon. They didn't think they could write for God. In 1 Maccabees, written around 100 BC, right in that time period where God is silent, the author writes of the Roman defilement of the temple and the altar, and he says there in Maccabees, they disassembled the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until there should come a prophet to tell them what to do with them. So here's a historical writer of the Jewish people writing in Maccabees, and he says, you know, this is what's happened to the temple, but we don't know what to do because we don't have a prophet. <laughs> we know we don't have a prophet to tell us what to do. So we're just going to store the stones until somebody can come along and actually tell us what God says we should do with them. So the apocryphal writers didn't say, thus saith the Lord. They didn't believe they were speaking on God's behalf. But then if we look at the historians around the time of Israel at this time, in the first century. If you look at historical sources like Josephus, and he was born right about the time of the crucifixion, and he made a career out of collecting and writing Jewish histories. And Josephus, writing in uh, the late first century, says, from Artaxerxes until our own time, a complete history has been written. He's talking about the apocryphal books. All of those books are the history of that period but not deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records. 
because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. So here's Josephus. He's not a particularly religious person, but he says, we have these histories, but we don't count them with equal credit with the Old Testament writers because there was no succession of prophets. They're just histories. They're not scriptures. And by the way, Artaxerxes is right about the time of Malachi and Esther, the last writings of the Old Testament. And so he's saying, since the time of Artaxerxes, around the time of Esther, around the time of Malachi, until now, we've got lots of history, but we don't have any scripture. And so basically, these books of the Old Testament are the ones that are here and considered the word of God because the whole community around them for centuries attested that they were God's word, and they could discern between God's word and not God's word. There were lots of books that were floating around, but they knew what was God's word and what was not God's word. And so we trust that God's community and that God is using his own community and his people as a means of the grace of preserving his word. You understand what I'm saying? It it makes sense to us that if God spoke and God told his prophets what to say and he told them to write it down, that by and large, even though God's community isn't perfect, God's community on a whole will be able to discern God's words from not God's words. And that's exactly what happened. So the canon, or the list of the Old Testament books, is not a list because a group of people got together and said, out of all these books, let's pick the ones that we like to be in God's word. The canon of the Old Testament is the canon of the Old Testament because they are the books that everybody was using as God's word. It was the other way around. And so that's one of the ways that God preserves his word is by the community that continues to recognize his word and keep it. So the Old Testament canon was fully established by the time of Jesus, and it was well known and authenticated before it was ever assembled into the form that we have it today in our Bibles. But what about the New Testament? This is where people will start to argue. The New Testament must be trickier, though. Why the New Testament being Scripture? Why do we trust it, since we don't have that thousands of years of confirmation by the people of Israel? What about, you know, Dan Brown and all of his theories and all these critical scholars who test what should be in the New Testament? Well, the first question may be, why would God start authenticating Scripture in the New Testament again, after all, since he just was silent for 400 years? And the answer to that is that we see a pattern emerging here, just as we have a pattern of God preserving his word through his community, we see a pattern of God giving the community his word at high points of redemptive history. In other words, we have creation, we have Noah, we have the calling of Abraham, We have the exodus from Egypt and the giving of the law. We have the fulfillment of God's promise of leading the people to the promised land. We have the time of the judges and kings, which were important. The building of the first temple, then the exile, and the return to rebuild the second temple. And then the Old Testament ends with the expectation of the Messiah to come. And so throughout the Old Testament, we realize that God keeps giving his people scripture when they need scripture. He keeps giving them their word when they need his word in redemptive history. And so with the arrival of Jesus then, one of the answers to the question is, why would scripture start up again? Is because this is now the turning point in redemptive history. And as Jesus returns as the turning point of redemptive history, we get a resurgence of God's written word. Just as the Old Testament began with God speaking and acting, the New Testament writing begins with Jesus speaking and acting. 
The Gospels capture the words and the action of God in Jesus. Jesus is the fresh word of God, Scripture. And he kicks off a new era of God establishing a new covenant, a new relationship. And so a new period of Scripture. A new period of communicating through his people and giving them his word by his spirit. And so just as the people wrote down the details of the covenant received from God on Mount Sinai through Moses, so the apostles write down the details of the new covenant received from God through Jesus. That's why scripture starts again. That's why God starts speaking again through his spirit and through his apostles. Jesus promised his disciples that the Holy Spirit would help them recall accurately the words and deeds of Jesus and interpret them truthfully. In John 14, 26, he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then again in John 16, he says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And then Jesus left his disciples with this great commission in Matthew 28. Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Right? So you see the pattern is repeating itself again. That God is speaking and he's telling his people that they're going to remember the truth and go and teach this. And the way that they do this, when the apostles are teaching, they are teaching, they are writing, they are speaking the very words of God as led by the Spirit. Paul confesses himself that spiritual authority for his teaching that is not from him is not from himself, but from God. He tells the Corinthians, he says, if anyone says that they are a prophet, notice the language here. This is all talking about biblical canon, why this can be trusted. He says that if anyone says they are a prophet or are spiritual, being led by the Spirit, He should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you is a command from the Lord. So Paul says, I am, doesn't call himself a prophet, he says, I'm led by the Spirit in this. This is is the Lord speaking when I say these things. And so we trust that the New Testament is the Word of God because we expect at that time for the Word of God to start coming to his people again. And when we look, we see the Word of God is coming to his people again. Very specifically, Jesus is instructing his apostles that they will know the right things to teach. But then we also have, again, the community confirming that these are the words of God. The early church recognized the authoritative words of the apostles to be scripture. Within perhaps 20 to 40 years of the death of Jesus, we already see that the church is accepting the Gospels and the Apostles' writing as canon right beside Old Testament Scripture and treating it the same. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter demonstrates that he's not only aware of all the letters that Paul has written, but he is willing to classify the things that Paul writes with the other Scriptures, he says. And then in 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now you may say, Paul, what does this prove anything about the acceptance of the New Testament as scripture? Okay, well this is where you got to Get your student hats on. This is teaching. When Paul says, the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, that first quote is from Deuteronomy 25.4. No argument, that's scripture. Paul's quoting scripture. 
But the second quote is not found in the Old Testament or in any other Jewish literature. It's only found in the Gospel of Luke 10.7, word for word in the Greek. So Paul here says, Scripture says you shall not muzzle out an ox when it treads out the grain, Deuteronomy, and the laborer deserves his wages. Luke, my buddy, who wrote the Gospel that you all know. They're both Scripture. Paul thinks that what Luke wrote was Scripture. And he commends it to the church as Scripture, both together, equally weighted. And we also have the confirmation of these texts in the early church practices of covenantal community reading. This is just another thing that happens, is that what we see as we go through the, the Word is that on regular occasions in the Old Testament, the body of Christ, the people of God, would take His Word and they would read it together in community like this. Right? Moses would gather the people and he would reread the law to them. When the, a new king came in, he was supposed to write down the law. He was supposed to copy it all out. And they would repeat the law in synagogue. They would repeat the law at the temple. If you read in Nehemiah, uh, in Ezra, they repeat the law in the hearing of all the people. And the people affirm and agree that this is the law and they're going to do it. Well, in the New Testament, what we find is, is that these letters and gospels, the people of God are encouraged to read them amongst themselves. Right? Paul says... Read these letters, Ephesians, and also read the letter from Laodicea and make sure my letter to you is read by them. And so we see in the early church the common practice of scriptures being read covenantally and New Testament scriptures were considered covenantal reading by the early church. So we have all of these things pointing towards the early church accepting the New Testament books as we have them as scripture and then I don't have time this morning to cover all of this, but the early church fathers. You have, within a few decades of, or even a few years actually, of the completion of Revelation in 92 AD, you have writers such as Clement of Rome in 96 AD, and Ignatius in 98 AD, and Polycarp in 110 AD, and Pappus in 120 AD. All of these early church fathers never try to add another book to the New Testament. All they do is attest to the various New Testament letters and Gospels and allude to a library, a collection, a church corpus of documents that they considered Scripture. So again, we go back to this idea that the formation of the Bible was not by means of a council. Even though people will point you to dates, you know, in 2270-something A.D. or 320-whatever, and they will point to dates and they will say, here, this is when they, you know, made the list. This is what I want you to understand is the reason the books made the list is because those are the books that the church was using for hundreds of years. They were simply recording what the church was using. They were not telling the church to use those things. So you have to get that order correct. So the formation of the Bible was not by means of a council. Rather, it was established by the historical Christian community that simply observed what letters and books the church did use and what ones they did not. So I've just done like, skimmed the historical and textual realities of why we trust this. Multiple ways in which why we trust that this actually has come to us by the word of God. But as disciples, what I think is most important is we have to ask ourselves, what does Jesus think about this book? What did he think about the word of God? 
And the reason I bring this up today is because the sad reality is of some churches and some branches of the faith that you may hear about, you may have come out of, you may be tempted to get into, is the fact that there are Christians who have all but given up on the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God as given to us in its entire counsel from Genesis to Revelation. There are lots of Christians out there, there are lots of churches who will not stand up here and say, this is the word of God. They'll say it contains the word of God, it may have part of the word of God, it's some distortion of the word of God, but it's not the word of God that you can trust and is relevant for us today. And there will be some of them, and it comes in a couple of different flavors, there will be a lot of Christians today that will say we need to unhook ourselves, especially from the Old Testament. That's usually where it begins. They usually say, oh, you know, the Old Testament has nothing really helpful to tell us. It's not really required for proper interpretation of the New Testament. That's wrong. The Old Testament is teaching us the same things about God as the New, and it is helpful for us and, in fact, required to interpret the New Testament correctly. But they'll say, we don't really need it anymore. We're New Covenant people living in the New Covenant. The Old Testament's got a lot of really weird stuff in it that we don't need to pay attention to anymore. But then others will go further and say, even in the New Testament, we really only need the red letters. Paul was kind of a grumpy guy, and he was, you know, a guy, strike one against him, and, you know, he's a guy that lived in a very patriotic age, strike two against him, and he's arrogant, strike three, so we don't listen to Paul that carefully. We don't listen to James or Peter that carefully. We don't listen to Luke that carefully, except when they give us what Jesus said. So all we really need is we need the red letters of the Bible. That's all we can really trust. If we can actually figure out whether that's what Jesus actually said or not, we trust the red letters. But that isn't what Jesus believed about Scripture. What did Jesus believe? Jesus believed that the Scriptures in their entirety were factual, truthful, historical, and inseparable. You can't unhook the Old Testament from the New Testament. You can't unhook the red letters from all the other letters. John 10 34 to 35, he says, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law that I said you are gods? If he called them gods, then to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, then... Well, I'm not going to complete the argument, because the argument isn't important. It's a fascinating argument that Jesus is making here, but that's not the point today. The point for us is what Jesus says in this quotation from the Psalms. He's he's refuting the arguments of the Pharisees here, and he's doing it by quoting Scripture, as he usually does. And he's quoting Psalm 82, 6, to be exact. And then he reminds them of what those Pharisees already know. Scripture cannot be broken. And the Greek word for broken here is luo, which is a very dynamic word. It means it can't be loosened, it can't be undone or separated, or it's sometimes used for divorced or disqualified or broken. Luo is used in all those senses at various parts of the New Testament. In other words, Jesus is saying in every sense of the word, you cannot separate Scripture. You can't pick it apart. You can't break it. You can't take it out of context. You can't misapply it. You can't unhook it. You can't unhinge it from anything amongst itself. That's Jesus' approach to Scripture. Later, Jesus says of the Old Testament in Matthew 5, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And there's people that want to unhook the New Testament church entirely from the Old Testament. And Jesus literally says, there's not even a punctuation mark that can be misplaced in the law until it's all fulfilled in the end. 
So don't you dare unhook the Old Testament from the New. He would never, Jesus would never tell his people to set aside the Word of God, anything in the Word of God, not even a comma. Jesus would never unhook his church from any portion of God's word. Never tell his church to divide it up into parts that are better than others or more reliable than others. Jesus, in his ministry, showed familiarity with every kind of scripture and references all of it as equally true and authoritative. And I have time, because I promised myself I wouldn't be late today, I have time to squeeze in just one example to consider of how Jesus uses the Old Testament here. Okay, so put your student hats on again because this is another teaching thing. We're going to look at a text and we're going to understand the implications of how Jesus teaches and what it tells us about what he believes about the word. How we can know how Jesus understood the scriptures. Matthew 12, 38 to 42 says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So here's Jesus just in everyday teaching mode, talking to the Pharisees. And he treats biblical history as a narrative of facts. We see that Jesus at various times makes reference to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and Abraham, Sodom and Gomorrah, manna in the wilderness, David, Solomon, the queen of Sheba, Elijah, Elisha, Naaman, Jonah, the widow of Zarephath. And Jesus never questions a single story of the Old Testament as being anything other than true. He never questions a single miracle or single historical claim. Jesus does not think that any of the people he lists in this text in Matthew are imaginary. Because people are like, what do we do with Jonah? He's swallowed by a big fish and then spit out and then he preached in Nineveh? Like, what do you do with a text like that? Well, if you look here, and some people might say, you know, Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that Jonah wasn't a real story, but he was tapping into the cultural narrative of the Jewish people. He knew that they had this myth of Jonah, and so he's just referring to this myth of Jonah, and that's why he's doing that. But when you actually read the text, does that make any sense? Jonah is listed here along with Solomon and the Queen of the South, who are verifiably real people. And then, even more importantly, the text says that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment against the people Jesus is talking to, because the men of Nineveh heard and responded to a gospel presented to them that was a much dimmer shadow compared to the reality that they have of Jesus presenting them the gospel in the flesh in their time. So does it make any sense? Do you think Jesus is saying, Pharisees, the men of Nineveh, who are imaginary people from a myth who didn't really accept the gospel, those imaginary people from this myth are going to rise up in the real judgment on the last day and judge you. That doesn't make any sense at all. If you're a textual critic, you can't make that stick. That would be like me saying, Lakeside, the men of Gondor are going to rise up in the last day and condemn you because something greater than Aragorn is before you today. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Jesus is not talking that way. He's talking about real people 
who will be judged by real people because they heard the gospel from Jonah. And we went did the series on Jonah back in January and February. And if you go back there, we know what a poor gospel message Jonah gave them. And Jesus says, yeah, Jonah was a terrible prophet. And the men of Nineveh believed him and came to trust in the Lord. And they are going to rise up in judgment over you Pharisees because you've got the Son of God here and you're not listening. This is how Jesus uses the Scripture. If you believe Jesus as a Christian, as a disciple, then you believe everything in the Old Testament just as he did. If Jesus is right in his acceptance of Old Testament history then boatloads of modern biblical criticism must be wrong. Because modern biblical criticism will tell you that the first five books of the Bible were not written by Moses. They were written by J or P or Q or some mystery writer. They will say Isaiah is not written by Isaiah, but by three authors, that Israel misread their own history and that it invented hundreds, even thousands of years after the facts, their own history. That Jesus was taken in by a national myth as one popular writer of the German School of Textual Criticism once said. But is it really hard to believe, is it really hard to imagine that Jesus understood written Jewish history better than 19th century Germans did? I think Jesus knew his history. I think Jesus knew his scripture because he wrote it. And he counted all of it as true and authoritative and relevant, even in the New Covenant. Anyone who has a high view of Scripture, and Baptists are sometimes accused of worshiping the Bible, right, by the more sort of so-called spiritual denominations out there. Oh, you Baptists, you're all about doctrine, and you're all about intellectual and studying the Bible. You worship the Bible, you don't worship Jesus. Well, the Bible is Jesus. Anyone who has a high view of Scripture is just joining Jesus in a high view of Scripture. Jesus had the highest view of Scripture. A Jesus that would be a judge over Scripture isn't the Jesus of Scripture. A Jesus that would judge this book or lead his people to judge this book is an invention of the human imagination. And to worship that Jesus is to worship a false god, because it's not the real Jesus. You might ask, how high is Jesus' view of Scripture? Well, just one example of how highly Jesus held this book. When tempted by Satan himself in the desert for 40 days, Jesus didn't call down lightning bolts. Jesus did not call down angels against Satan. Three times he said, it is written, and quoted scripture. And that's it. So if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Pretty sure it's good enough for all of us. So then we ask ourselves, What confidence do we have that the words that we have are the words that God intended for us? Well, we can have a significant amount of confidence, as I, again, just grazed on at the very surface of. We can have a significant amount of confidence historically. We can have a significant amount of confidence based on covenant community affirmation and authentication. And we have a significant amount of confidence based on the Scripture's own self-authentication, the inherent consistency. And you can go and find the data on, you know, how accurate this text is, you know, how it's 99.67% accurate even though it's been recorded by human scribes and that nowhere where there might be a missed letter or repeated line is it ever impact doctrine we you can get all of, I'm not I wasn't going to go into all that stuff today you can you can read that in a hundred different places 
But for example, when the Dead Sea Scrolls, sea Scrolls were found as late as 19, I think it was 1946 or somewhere in there, they contained an exact, uh, uh, pretty much an entire copy of Isaiah. And even though that copy of Isaiah was separated by literally centuries from all other copies of Isaiah, it was literally perfect down to a couple of punctuation marks. So the notion that somehow copies of copies of copies are inerrant or, or are errant just doesn't hold any water when you do the actual criticism of the manuscripts. So we have all of this authentication, but we also have the final confidence that is this, that if we trust God, then we trust that God guards his own word, and he wants his people to have his word, because his words are life, Deuteronomy 32 and Matthew 4 says. God is not the kind of father that would trick us or withhold from us anything that we need for life and godliness and to know him. If we believe God is God, there's no way he would let us have this book if it was that wrong. It's right. It's good. And it's important that we take Scripture seriously because it's by these Scriptures that we will be judged. John 12, 48 to 50. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. Jesus said it about as clear as possible without actually saying it. Write this down. You're going to be judged by this. This is God's word I'm telling you. And it's going to judge you. I'm not judging you. Christians aren't judging you. The church isn't judging the world. It's already been judged by the word of God. And that's scary, except what Jesus puts in there. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Boy, if I'm going to be judged, I want to be judged by a word that promises eternal life. When the disciples... We're listening to, and when I say the disciples, I mean hundreds of disciples. When the, when the crowds were gathered around Jesus and he was teaching, he was teaching these hard words that were judging the people and they hated it and they walked away. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them walked away and, and Jesus looked up and the only left, people left there were the 12. And he said, are you going to go too? Are you leaving? And Simon Peter answered him. He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we've believed And we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There is nowhere else to go. These are the words of life. Why does every Christian hold so tightly to this book? Why do we believe that this book is our very life and breath? Because we are told that it is. And because within the Christian community, for literally thousands of years, this word has been life and breath to the people of God. It has redeemed us over and over and over again and will redeem us finally in the last day. There's nowhere else to go. So put aside any questions you have about this book or rather, ask your questions and find out. God's not afraid of your questions. His book stands the test of every challenge. These promises are true and trustworthy. God's promises alone are what we stand on. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And as we do this summer series on doctrine, of course, we have to talk about your word because it's where we get all our doctrine from. And so we thank you, Lord. 
We thank you as believers that you have guided and guarded your word, that you spoke creation into being, that you spoke to your people, that you told your people to write your word down, that you then preserved your word in community, and then you assembled it and gathered it and kept it for us, and by your Holy Spirit have drawn authors to write your word. And Father, that we can find it so trustworthy, and that it resonates in our own hearts the final confirmation with the Holy Spirit, when we read these words, they redeem our life like no other words we've ever read before. So, Father, we don't worship the words on the page. We worship the writer of the script. We worship the word incarnate, your son, Jesus Christ. And we just trust him, we trust you, we trust your word, that you're for us and not against us, and you would never lead us astray. We pray these things in Jesus' name.